AGL 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Sidney Liu, Assistant Professor in the Department of History at Michigan State University. Dr. Liu is the author of Japanese American Migration and the Making of Model Women for Japanese Expansion in Brazil and Manchuria, 1871 to 1945, published in the December 2017 issue of Journal of World History. Dr. Liu, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for inviting me. Your work to date has looked at issues of migration, settler colonialism, and race and gender in, the, in this really transnational perspective. And you're working especially on the transmigration of Japanese people outside of Japan during the Meiji period. So could you talk about what's happening in the Meiji period that sparks this trans-Pacific migration? Sure. Um, I think um, Meiji period is really important in the general history of, of Japanese migration in modern era, because both of the two main contexts for Japanese migration, including Japan's involvement in the global labor market and the expansion of the Meiji Empire, came into being right after Meiji Restoration. So therefore, I think Meiji era is really the beginning of the narrative of the Japanese migration as history. And the central question in the book that I have just completed is how the experience of Japan's trans-Pacific migration and colonial expansion were connected with each other. Different from many other scholars uh, who have focused on the experience of Japanese migrants themselves, I examine the ideas and practices of Japanese migration promoters, including the policymakers, the social reformers, intellectuals, owners and employees of migration companies, and the leaders of migrant communities across the Pacific. I focus on how these migrant promoters thought about what emigration could do for the empire and how they brought these ideas into practice. So at the center of my inquiry is a discourse of overpopulation that I call Malthusian expansionism. So this is a set of ideas that fanned the anxiety of overpopulation on the one hand and celebrates population growth on the other hand. For one thing, it argues that the existing territory of Japan was small and was incapable to accommodate so many people it currently had. Overpopulation had resulted in many social problems, such as a food shortage, job shortage, crimes, and perhaps more than anything else, poverty. And for another thing, it also celebrates the overall population growth in Japan as a symbol of national strength and progress and emphasize the necessity for Japanese population to continue to grow. So as we can see here, there's a tension. If we want population continue to grow, at the same time, we suffer from the problem of overpopulation. Then how to deal with this surplus people? And here, emigration came in handy as the best solution. By relocating the surplus people abroad, it would not only solve the issue of overpopulation at home, but also increase the wealth and power of the empire abroad. And then further, it will free up land in the home archipelago so that population can continue to grow. So this discourse actually has been serving Japan's imperial expansion ever since the Meiji era. But again, you know, it emerged in the very beginning of Meiji when the empire started its first project of expansion, that is the colonization of Hokkaido. 
both the claim of overpopulation and the celebration of Japan's population growth as a racial strength and a national progress were invented around this time and worked together, first of all, to justify a Meiji government's policy to relocate the declass samurai from Honshu to Hokkaido as colonial settlers. Or audience perhaps know really well that you know in the following decades, particularly uh, in the 1930s, overpopulation was used by uh, the Japanese policymakers and diplomats、um, as a justification for Japan's migration project in Manchuria. But again, you know this idea was not new in the 1930s.、Uh, it was invented in Meiji in the very beginning of Meiji era. And it was actually embraced by different generations of Japanese expansionists to rationalize Japanese migration to the American West, to Texas, to Brazil, and then in the 1930s to Manchuria. But again,、uh, you know, the discourse emerged in early Meiji, which makes Meiji era indeed a really important starting point to look at Japanese history of migration. You mentioned this discourse of overpopulation and. You know, I'm curious. Did, did the population really increase that much between the end of the Tokugawa period and the early Meiji period? I mean, scholars have rightfully challenged the idea of Tokugawa seclusionism, but there does seem to be this sudden shift where you know people didn't really travel abroad during the Tokugawa period, and now all of a sudden with Meiji, there is this effort to encourage people to go overseas.、Right. So, is it? The population is changing, or is the political situation, the political ideas, is that what's changing? Yeah, you're you're definitely right. I appreciate this question. I think both are true.、Uh, first of all, you definitely correct in mentioning that、um, you know Tokugawa as a historical period was already kind of quite prospering,、uh, and in a way that there, if you look at the population growth, it's perhaps difficult to claim that the population began to. Explode right after Meiji Restoration, right? It, it, this is definitely not true because Tokugawa period in Japan was was already quite developed in terms of population growth. But、uh, indeed, you know,、uh, a series of policies made by the Meiji government definitely resulted in population growth, gradual population growth、uh, after Meiji Restoration. For example, the banning of infanticide. As well as the implementation of kind of a modern hygiene system, all of this、uh, actually helped Japan's population growth.、Um, however, on the other hand, I would like to clarify that by the term overpopulation, I do not mean this is a reality that、uh, the Japanese expansionists used to rationalize overseas migration. Overpopulation、uh, for them was more like a Invention than a reality, because the claim of overpopulation in Honshu was made actually three years before a a national population survey has ever done, because at that time you know rationalized migration to Hokkaido was a political necessity.、Uh, therefore, policymakers in the very beginning of the Meiji era argued that now we have a regional imbalance, imbalanced distribution of population. We have Overpopulation in certain areas in Honshu, but Hokkaido was empty. Therefore, we have social poverty in Honshu. In order to solve this problem, we have to relocate some of surplus people from Honshu to Hokkaido. Again,、uh, to answer your question, I think overpopulation was more a claim, a invented claim, than a social reality. Yet, it is definitely true that there has been a population growth. 
So kind of a, a pretense for expansion even. Right. And you mentioned Hokkaido as one destination, and as well as the U.S. West and Brazil. So what are some other places? What are, what are the destinations for these migrants that are leaving Japan? Right, sure. I think when people talk about the history of Japanese overseas migration, few would actually look at Hokkaido, but I think Hokkaido was really the origin or the prelude of Japan's overseas migration. Why? I, why? Because if you focus on Malthusian expansionism, Hokkaido was really the place where it originated, uh, you know, as a, as a kind of a colonial discourse. From the beginning of Meiji era, Japan's leaders were really impressed by the global expansion of Anglo-Saxons and followed it as a textbook for Japan's own project of empire building. So Hokkaido was the first colonial project, and it was also a project that the Meiji policymakers emulate Anglo-Saxon expansion very carefully. I think listeners know the story of Horace Capron, uh, who was a commissioner of agriculture in the United States, who was actually hired by Meiji government to be uh, the chief advisor of Hokkaido colonization. He, and among many others from the United States, was hired by the Meiji government experts. But what is actually not commonly known, but also very important, was the story of Tsuda Sen. He was a brain of Japan's colonization of Hokkaido in the early Meiji. He was hired by Meiji government to be the editor of Hokkaido Development Journal. He believed that Hokkaido was similar to American West in terms of its emptiness and abundance of natural resource. He envisioned that uh, the Japanese settlers would turn Hokkaido into Japan's California. I, I didn't make it up. He actually wrote it, <laughs> you know, word for word. His view uh, was also ad- accepted by many others of his time, including Fukuzawa Yukichi, who was also a, actually a supporter uh, of Hokkaido colonization. So because of the constant discussion uh, about the similarities between Hokkaido and the American West among the Japanese expansionists in early Meiji, when uh, Japan officially opened its gate for emigration overseas in the 1880s, the American West actually became one of the first ideal destination for Japanese emigration. By going to the Western frontier of American expansion, not only would the Japanese be able to learn firsthand from the Anglo-Saxon settlers, they would also participate in the colonial competition against them. So this is, you know, the rationale of the Japanese expansionists in the 1880s who argue that why we should go to the United States, go to American West and settle there. For example, Fukuzawa Yukichi was one of the central promoters of Japanese American migration in the 1880s. You know, we all, we all know his you know, famous essay of de-Asianization, right? He talked about uh, Japan should say goodbye to Asia. But what is less known was was that he was also a vocal promoter of Japan's migration to the United States, right? We should go to the United States. We should go to the West uh, in the 1880s. He, he further argued that we should build small Japans in the United States um, in the 1880s. He also actually funded some of his students for their migration project. I think in, the, uh, in 1888, there's an alumni association of K.O. Gijuku was formed in San Francisco with more than 30 members. Um, all of them actually studied with him. So this is how the, the, the first 
wave of Japanese American migration started, and and also,、uh, you know, the idea of thinking American West as a target of Japan's colonial expansion was also embraced by、uh, the early、uh, Japanese travelers to United States in the、uh, late 1880s and early 1890s. You know, just like the way the Japanese expansion is described, Hokkaido, this. Early travelers and settlers describe United、uh, American West as empty, as resourceful. Also, you know,、um, there there's one book even argued that you know the Native Americans was similar to the Ainu、uh, in Hokkaido.、Uh, the author even called the Native Americans Red Ainu to give you an example how they think about this parallel. And that connection between the American West and Hokkaido has always been fascinating. And of course, everyone who travels to Sapporo will hear that phrase "boys be ambitious." Right? This right. William Clark who, who gets brought over to teach some of these new frontier children, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. You're you're definitely right. William Clark, you know, he was he was the head of Massachusetts Agricultural College. He was hired by Meiji government to found the Sapporo Agricultural College, and later became the Hokkaido Imperial University. I wanted to go back to Fukuzawa's small Japan's and how he was saying Japanese migrants should go set up small Japan's in places like the U.S. West, and this kind of brought to mind what you were talking about earlier with this connection between migration and colonialism. Right. I mean, is Fukuzawa envisioning a type of Japanese settler colonialism in these small Japan's, or can you elaborate more on that connection between overseas migration and colonialism? Are, are these like early attempts at establishing footholds with the eye towards future imperialism? Right. Sure.、Uh, thank you for asking. I think this, you know, what what Fukuzawa Yuki said was so fascinating.、Uh, in the conventional wisdom, you know, people usually divide the history of Japanese migration into two kind of very different fields. On the one hand, there were Japanese people who moved to East Asia、uh, in modern time.、Um, you know, their story was basically submerged into the overall narrative of colonial expansion. But on the other hand, there were Japanese people who. Migrated overseas to the other side of the Pacific, but their stories were memorized as very differently.、Um, they were memorized as, say, for example, victim of racism, a victim of racial exclusion, etc.、Uh, I think this is, you know, there are many values in these、um, narratives. But but if you read Fukuzawa Yukichi and many other writers in Meiji, in Taisho, in Showa era, you will realize that actually. This imin and shokumin, or migrants and settlers, were not that clearly divided in the mind of Japanese expansionists. So we, how do we, how can we confront this inseparability or this conflation? I think it's it's a starting point of my book. So go back to Fukuzawa Yukichi. Yes, I think so. I, I think he he did envision、uh, the Japanese migration as a Kind of you know first step of settler colonialism. It's probably、uh, confusing to think that why he think migration to a sovereign nation can be considered settler colonialism because at that time American West was already claimed by the United States, right? It was a territory of a sovereign nation. However, I, I think you know again this this idea of of sending migrants as a way of settler colonial expansion was. What the Japanese expansion is borrowed from the Anglo-Saxons by reading their history. 
You're absolutely right. There does seem to be this different memory of the settler colonial experience in places like Korea and North America. You wonder if it's because this memory of Japanese imperialism gives us this teleological hindsight, where because Korea ended up as a Japanese colony, all of the migration prior to that was just kind of setting the groundwork. Right, exactly. You know, when, when we talk about settler colonialism of Japanese empire, I think Korea definitely, you know, absolutely Korea is an important location to think about. Taiwan, perhaps another important location to think about it because, uh, you know, after all, Korean Peninsula and Taiwan were formal colonies of the Japanese empire. But um, again, I think we should also think beyond the boundary of colonial empire to think about a settler colonialism by focusing on the ideas and, and also the human and institutional connections. Let me also clarify what I, the point I, I made previously, you know, why I, I would argue that Japanese migration to the United States was, should be considered from the perspective of settler colonialism as well. You know, for the Japanese expansionists, um, they accept this idea of land ownership invented by John Locke. For many of our listeners know that John Locke uh, was uh, an Enlightenment thinker who, you know, who was famous for his, his, his defense of the British settler colony in America. He particularly coined this idea of land ownership, right? He, he argued that all unworked land are unowned. Uh, one can only claim a land ownership by working on it. So for the Japanese expansionists, although the territories in North America, South America, even Australia were already claimed, but because of the low density of white population there, many areas of this continent uh, should be considered unowned because they are unworked. Therefore, they believe that the Japanese settlers had the opportunity to work on this land, to occupy them, and to own them. So this is their rationale. This is why they think that the Japanese had an opportunity to build settler colonies in the land already owned. And also, one chapter of my book elaborate a kind of you know, less known history of Japanese migration to Texas. I think tax- Texas is an important kind of chapter um, of Japanese-American migration, which um, you know, usually people overlooked. Because Texas, you know, one Japanese expansionist actually read a book about promoting Japanese migration to Texas. You know, this book actually explained really well why the Japanese believe that uh, American migration should be considered settler colonialism. His name is uh, Yoshimura Daijiro. He argued that uh, you know, the history of Texas itself actually demonstrates how migration can be developed into settler colonial expansion. Um, he argued that, you know, uh, if, if you look at the history of Texas, uh, the ownership of Texas already has been shifted hands many times, you know, originally from Native Americans to the Spanish and then to the Mexicans and then to uh, the Anglo-Saxons. Particularly, he argued that when the Anglo-Saxons, when they, when they moved into Texas, uh, Texas belonged to the Mexicans. But gradually, as they settled down, as they work hard on the land, uh, gradually Texas eventually was turned into the territory of the United States. That's, that's how he believed that by migrating into Texas, uh, the Japanese might have an opportunity to uh, turning Texas into their own land as well. And don't forget the Republic of Texas. <laughs> That's right.
one difference we could point to between, say, the situation in North America and the situation in Korea is, you know, there's this very famous speech by Yamagata Aritomo where he talks about Korea falling within this Japanese line of interest that's necessary to maintain the line of sovereignty. So it seems to have a much more integral part in Japanese conceptualizations of national security, whereas the U.S. would fall far outside of that, which might explain why there's so much interest put into Korea as a territory of colonial acquisition. Now, building on that, you you mentioned Fukuzawa, you mentioned Yoshimura Daijiro. Can you talk about who are these other expansionists and the ideas that they have and elaborate on how much aspiration for colonial acquisition did they have in these territories? Sure. Another figure I want to highlight is Nagata Shigeshi. You know, his life is another kind of illustration of this trans-Pacific connections. So he started his career as a migrant by moving into the United States around the time of Russo-Japanese War. He worked as, a, as, as editor of, uh, of a, a agricultural newspaper in Japanese-American communities. And then in the 1920s, uh, as he described, he was uh, very disappointed by uh, racism that Japanese-Americans received in the United States. He moved to Brazil. At that time, he was already, he, he was also uh, named as a president of a major Japanese migration association, which is called uh, Nihongi Kokai, or Japanese Striving Society. So as a president of the Striving Society, he, he worked with Nagano Prefecture and collected en- enough money to purchase a piece of land in uh, the state of Sao Paulo in Brazil. You know, he believed that the future of Japanese expansion was not well, no longer in North America because the rampant racism um, the Japanese settlers received there but lies in South America in Brazil where the Japanese uh, could were able to purchase land to own land and and he named this land he and Nagano prefecture purchased he named the community the Japanese community established over this newly purchased land in Sao Paulo, Alianza in Portuguese, which in, in English, it means alliance. Uh, the name itself actually was a direct response to the uh, racial exclusion or racism Japanese American received because you know by naming this community alliance, what he meant is that we Japanese, um, as a, a you know, superior but also civilized race, we would treat native people much better than the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, while the Anglo-Saxons only know how to exclude others, we are willing to coexist and work with uh, local people. Perhaps our listeners are familiar with uh, this, this kind of idea of an, or a project of the Japanese wartime empire called Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. But the idea of this coexistence, co-prosperity was already invented in the 1920s to justify Japan's migration to Brazil before this, this whole set of idea was transplanted to Manchuria. And Nagata Shigeshi himself and with his striving society later also played an active role in Japan's mass migration to Manchuria in the 1930s. And later also, you know, he participated into Japan's migration and expansion into uh, Southeast Asia at the peak of uh, the Pacific War. To go back, you were talking about this tie between Japanese migration, especially to places like South America and North America, 
And of course, when we talk about the national history of Japanese in places like Canada and the United States, it's, of course, a story that's, as you mentioned, often about racial discrimination and, and certainly the internment mm-hmm. of Japanese Americans and Japanese Canadians mm-hmm. in 1942. I mean, Some people might say, oh, well, if they're setting the groundwork for Japanese acquisition of North America, then there was a lot of truth to the fears of invasion. Is that what you're getting at? No, definitely not. I don't think the internment is justified. No, absolutely not. So I, so I want to be absolutely clear that my focus was the migration promoters, not the migrants themselves.、Uh, I do not believe the migrants themselves deserve the internment. I do not claim the migrants themselves were invaders, so that's why, like I said in the beginning, my focus was was the migration promoters,、uh, including the Japanese policymakers, the social reformers, as well as the intellectuals, the Japanese imperialists. Most of them were actually located in Tokyo or in Japanese archipelago. My focus was how they envisioned, how they thought about what migration can do for the empire. Their thinking was absolutely different from the、uh, most of the migrants themselves on the other side of the Pacific. One of the questions that comes up when we're talking about trans-Pacific or, or even transnational histories, and when looking at, say, the experience of, of migrants going overseas, how should we approach this? Is this a Japanese story? Is this a Story of say the U.S. West or South America, wherever these migrants go, or maybe another way to phrase that is whose national history do these migrants fit into, or should we just get rid of national history as a concept at all? Right, good question. I think the reason why you know the existing scholarship fails to recognize the connections between Japanese migration in Asia and the Japanese migration to North and South America was precisely. Because it was confined by national history, that is, the Japanese migration to North and South America was considered as ethnic history in United States, ethnic history in Canada, ethnic history in Brazil. Well, the Japanese migration in Asia was considered as a part of the national history of the Japanese Empire. I think this is、um, perhaps、uh, even an issue of history as a profession was really confined. By nation state,、uh, my contribution in this book was to go beyond it, to transcend the national boundary, by elaborate these connections. Stories like Fukuzawa Yukichi, story at Tsuda Sen, and story、um, of Nagata Shigeishi, among many others, whose whose life story has you know, well transcend the boundary of history of nations. Since you've done so much research on migration, how is it that you're bringing migration into your classes, and and what's useful about focusing on trans-Pacific or even deconstructing the nation-state in your night na- in your class through looking at migration? I, I think migration is important part of Asian history, particularly. You know, I I'm I'm teaching a class、uh, called Asia and the World uh, regularly uh, at Michigan State.、Uh, you know, one point I try to highlight in my class is that. The interactions between Asia and the West in modern time、uh, were bidirectional.、Uh, usually, students have this idea that you know the West、uh, had a huge impact on Asia in modern time. Westerners and you know came to Asia and helped a- Asian society to modernize to move forward. This you know in many ways this is true. However,、um, there's another 
side of the story, which is usually student didn't think about, is at the same time when the Westerners came to Asia, there were also Asians who migrated to the West. In my class, I focus on the Chinese and Japanese migration to the United States. Um, the you know I have lectures about Chinese migration and Japanese migration to the U.S. By doing so, I want to give a student idea that when the Westerners came to Asia and played an important role in the history in Asian history, the Chinese, Japanese, and Koreans were also changing the West. So West changed Asia as much as Asia changed the West. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts (ISIT). Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series, by visiting our website, MeijiAt150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.